Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Michaela Watkins, an actor and comedian you've seen in everything. On TV, in Casual, and The Unicorn, and Trophy Wife, and New Girl, and Transparent, and Search Party, and The Dropout, and in movies like Lynn Shelton's Sort of Trust, Nicole Olive Center's Enough Said and You Hurt My Feelings, and Josh Rubin's Werewolves Within. Now she's starring in Dane Clark and Lindsay Stewart's spiky comedy Suze as an empty nester who takes in the doofus ex-boyfriend her daughter dumped when she left for college. The movie's a charmer, and Watkins is great in it, and it's in theaters across Canada right now. You should check it out. Michaela picked Valley Girl, Martha Coolidge's 1983 romance starring Deborah Foreman as Julie, a San Fernando Valley teen swept off her feet by a love-struck Hollywood kid named Randy, who's played in his first leading role by Nicolas Cage. A seminal 80s teen picture before they were codified into something slicker and more commercial, Valley Girl is an earnest, weird two-hander that pulls you into its love story almost without you noticing. It's a charmer too, even if it's very much of its time. You'll see. This is someone else's movie. I was 12, but that was around when we were starting to, you know, renting things on VHS. And um, so I, I was probably around, you know, I was definitely listening to the Frank Zappa, um, uh, Moon Zappa thing. So song, Valley Girl. So it was, even though I was growing up in Syracuse, New York, it had definitely made its way to, you know, Valley Speak has definitely made its way out here. And we were all emulating that all over the place. And, um, but, but uh, I remember obviously it was our first time seeing Nicolas Cage. And when I watched it again, I was like, he's a star. Like he, he was a star then in his very first feature. And he was a star. I mean, to put him on the scene, I guess, I'm assuming it was his first feature, but you know, he, he, he had it, he had that thing, but also for me, I wanted to talk about it because it's so weird to be able to sit in two different bodies and watch the same movie and uh, and so I I have I was the whole time I was watching it I was in a constant conversation with myself with um you know teenage me and and just turning 50 something me (laughs) and so I I just was you know my head was just bopping back and forth and back and forth and really in awe of some things and then really genuinely upset about other things um you know just understanding that the the got it there's so much to say about it where do you want to start (laughs) i mean that's exactly it uh there is a huge gulf right between Mm -hmm. who we were who we are how we processed art and how we do now the things you bring Mm -hmm. to a film with experience and, and age um we just did an episode uh, on the Red Shoes with uh, Meredith Hammer Brown, who's a filmmaker who made a terrific film called Seagrass. Um, mm-hmm. And she'd only seen it last year. She'd never seen it before. And I've mm-hmm. grown up with it as like this received wisdom as a cult object, as one of the greatest films ever made. And I don't disagree. I think it's an exceptional movie. But to see it fresh now, I would, mm-hmm. I would love that opportunity. And with Valley Girl, I, my wife uh, hadn't seen it. Kate and I watched it together last night. Mm-hmm. I saw it, I guess, last maybe when the DVD came out because it had the corrected soundtrack and that was a big deal. 
Oh, um, yeah. Some, some music replacement. I mean, there are songs on the soundtrack album that aren't in the film. There are songs in the credits that aren't in the film. Yeah. Yeah. There are. Aren't yeah, there? A um, few, yeah. I don't. I mean, I've, I've seen that happen. Like, I, I had a short that went to Sundance that had totally different music than when it came out because we couldn't get those rights. But so that must have been what happened. I'm I think assuming. so. Yeah. There's there's a yeah. whole thing on Wikipedia about how the um, the music rights were sort of garbled. They still managed to release the the albums, but they couldn't mm -hmm. put them in the film. And then eventually they had to replace the music. Sorry for VHS. So the the music on the videotape isn't the same as the music on the DVD. Universal went through a whole bunch of these. This is like the only time I can think of that it happened with an MGM title. According wow. to Wikipedia, anyway, the, the budget for the film is $250,000. The budget for the music rights ended up being $350,000 on top of, of that. Of course. Right. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that something? Yeah. Also, by the way, the fact that the budget is, what'd you say, $350,000 $250, for the film? That's not different than indie films are now. Like, talk about things that have not grown, you know, indie budgets have not grown. I, I just... It's strange to me that that film was made in 1983, you said? Released and in 83, like, shot in 82. Yeah. Um, shot in 82 for the same kind of budget that you would get for a not even a first-time director yeah. now. But if you exclude the cost of the film stock, which would have been a fortune, right? Mm -hmm. Like it was made for oh, less, right. so much less. Mm -hmm. And it's it's fascinating to, to me now to watch it because the other thing I found about it is that it's almost plotless. It really... Mm -hmm. I know it's got a link letter quality to it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it kind of feels a little dazed and confused to me. Just a series of people wandering around, driving, maybe kissing, maybe not. And the sound mix is just sort of has that kind of um, that we're we're in a moment, and it's just it's like one night. Most the most of the film is one night, one day, one night, mm. and uh, and that it just sort of meanders, and it's not about anything. <laughs> I mean, it's it, there's the romantic comedy quality to it and the sort of, um, you know, Romeo and Juliet kind of like 16 Candles thing about mm. it, but not 16 Candles, um, Pretty in Pink vibes, you know, um, but I, I think the thing that I just, I'll just start with what was sort of glaring out at me. One, Please? yes, Nicolas Cage, amazing. Two, um, the fashion was really something, uh, the, everything from, you know, the, the, the pastels and everything to the Laura Ashley, Lacey, what we were trying to look like Victorian women as hot, you know, hot teenagers. I, I don't understand, but also we were, you know, it was so sexualized. So there's this, I just was watching this whole movie and the lack of consent that is going through the entire film. And I was just, I, I, I thought this is this is what raised me, you know, like this is the stuff that we were raised on. This is the the ecosystem of toxic masculinity that was so not just fostered, but I think I think um, sort of had to happen. Like, I know that when uh, Martha Coolidge made this movie, the director, when she made the movie, they weren't going to let her direct it unless she promised that they did three nude scenes. Um, and so I, cause I was watching it at a women in film screening and she was there to do this Q and A after, which was really fabulous. But I just thought, God, you know, th the only way that they would let this woman direct it, they didn't trust that she would show the boobs 
So they had to put it into her contract. You will give us three nude scenes. And she said, you know, the, 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 the script doesn't support it. And they said, I don't care. Like, and I just picture these execs sitting around with cigars being like, just show us the boobies, you know? Yeah. And it just is so gross. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any other way to say it, except it's just so gross. And this is, this is the pool that formed this, that, you know, that we were born in and so, and raised in, in film. And, and of course things are majorly screwed up. And, and it's amazing that we even have, you know, language for it now. I'm so happy because there shouldn't be no reason because we were so brainwashed to think that all, all guys were going to try to do was get in your pants and that um, it was on us to fight them off, not on them to not do it. And you see it through the entire movie. <laughs> yeah. I was actually really, mm -hmm. the second time through, or maybe I guess the third time through for me, mm -hmm. I was really impressed with how uncomfortable the nude scenes feel. Like they're not, mm -hmm. they're not they're so lit arbitrary. For, yeah. They're not lit for mm -hmm. attractiveness. Like it's, it's nope. definitely, it's neither the male gaze nor the female gaze exactly. It's some weird, ugly mm -hmm. compromise that makes everyone, that implicates everyone in just how uncomfortable these scenes are. Um, yeah, it's like this dumb, perfunctory boob just like go, happening. And you go, okay, I guess, why? You know, yeah. I don't know why that had to happen, but I guess it did. Also, like the other thing of just, you know, Julie, the character Julie's parents are maybe the same age as her. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, all the quote unquote adults in the movie are the same age as the high school kids. I can't imagine there's a big age gap there. Yeah. I'm just looking at that. I'm like, who are all these babies playing adults and who are these adults playing babies? Just It was the weirdest in that way. Yeah. Well, I do think that something weird was going on in California right then too with, with people stopping smoking. And so younger people looked mm -hmm. older and older people looked like they'd stabilize somehow because you like there's so like Frederick Forrest is a guy who's clearly had a life before he came to this movie um right to the point where I think that's her Colin, dad right? yeah yeah and Colleen Camp dad, who, yeah. who were both in Apocalypse mm -hmm. Now which is so weird um and <laughs> and they are constantly reminding us that he met her when she was younger like Colleen Camp is younger than Frederick Forrest oh. and it's oh, yeah. like what is that about that weird dynamic where like did they just improvise all of that a lot of it does. There's a looseness to a lot of the That's supplemental the characters. Thing. Those supplemental characters are wild. They're just so <laughs> funny. But also, I mean, I really, I, I say all this and I love the movie. Like, I really love the movie. Um, it's, it meant a lot to me then. And I'm trying to think why. Uh, I definitely related more to the uh, Hollywood kids than to the Valley kids. Yeah. And um I think I aspired to be a Valley kid more than, a, you know, I, I, but I was too into punk rock at the time, but I think I wanted to be a cute blonde. Never was, never will be. Um, and I also, the music is badass. It's amazing. Uh, it's so good. Didn't it put uh, uh, Melt With You? Is that in that movie? Yeah. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was the other thing I noticed when I was watching it is um, that song "A Million Miles Away," which I forgot was even in that movie, and they play it twice. Like mm -hmm. he goes back to the same club, and they're still playing. It. 
<laughs> and maybe that was just for, like I said, the release to edit. But um, I thought, gee, really like getting his money's worth out of this song at the at the club. But um, but you know, it was just it was the. I just love this movie so much, and it, thank God for it because it is such a time capsule of the eighties and and things that you can't um, that you can't make up and things that were put in here so clearly and so weird like i don't know if you'll you'll catch it but at some point she's cuddling this wooden clown and like yes. she goes to bed with this like wood clown at night and it's the most terrifying scary thing and i can't i'm just picturing that it was just happened to be on the cheap set that they were using and so she wanted to use it but i but i feel like that is terrifying and just these weird nods through the whole film yeah, I was trying to figure out if, the, like, if this something the hippie parents gave a child and they just saddled her with it because there's stuff all over the yeah. house, which I thought was also yeah. kind of this really weird specificity in the detailing, like the props and sets. You do feel like, and maybe they weren't even sets, like they may have shot on someone's in someone's home just because they didn't have the money to build them, but it feels like oh, you've stumbled into some weirdo's house, right? Yeah, they definitely shot in someone's home. I, I feel like she even mentioned whose it was, like where it was. Oh yeah. But also, yeah, I think it was like all in Calabasas or something. But <laughs> I also I feel like um there's this amazing shift too that we get to look back and see, which is at the time I was like, ew, her parents worked at a health food restaurant, you know? Right. And now it's like that would be that would be such a status flex if you were if you owned a health food restaurant, you know? And, but then she was so embarrassed. She's like, why can't you guys work at McDonald's for sure? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, no, have some, have some soybean paste. Um, but yeah. yeah. What is it? It doesn't taste like anything, but it's good for you. I mean, they went on and found Whole Foods. Yeah. I'm sure of it. They're fine now. I, you, oh, of course. And you know, they're probably Trumpers now too. Like <laughs> the, all, all, all the, all the like hippies from the, then are now like the, the MAGA crowd now. Somehow. Um, yeah. Somehow. I've never understood the, the. Nor I. The, what is it? It's like the, the psychological eclipse required to go from from one extreme to the other but you see like it's the same way that like anti-vaxxers came from the wellness crowd mm -hmm. right like it's right. just one thing that they hook onto. yeah i think they just clip clop so far to the left that they just boing back around to the right you know yeah um <laughs> and <laughs> that's my own that's my own commentary i refuse to consider the possibility though that julie and randy grew up to be trumpers they're still cool there's yeah. no way there's those kids are they're fine and oh they're yeah i mean no. she might have she might have she seemed impressionable <laughs> you pull her back <laughs> i have no idea what they'd be doing now they don't seem to have any yeah. skills but um yeah but there is exactly but there's something so pure and and yeah you're mentioning the hues mentioning pretty in pink makes me think of mm. um like the logical successor to that which is cameron crow in my mind and say anything where mm -hmm. lloyd just fixates on the girl oh, totally. dreams, right and yeah here, and i i think that's also can i say that can i swear sure bring it okay i think that's also just what fucked us up women it, you know for these romantic um sort of tropes of men who are going to just i mean i fell for it and like if, if a guy made big you know big gestures romantic gestures that's all you had to do like it just 
in in my mind, it definitely got slotted as as so romantic and not at all obsessive and creepy. Right. There are versions yeah. of these films. Where, yeah. And having Nicolas Cage stare at you across a crowded room, there are movies where that's disturbing, right? Like he's done that he in a different way. Totally. I, I mean, he climbs into a bathroom and then waits until she comes in. And I, what I love is that nobody's just in there going to the bathroom. Everybody's in there applying lipstick and adjusting their, their bra um, or hooking up yeah. or doing drugs. And and he's got all these expressions that are that is like montage of Nicolas Cageisms, and and it's I don't know I just I think the movie just has a certain tone that is unmistakably unique and uh, and I've never seen replicated really again. So to have a female director who gets to step in and put her stamp on it and. Um, even though she had to like get women to take their shirts off three times, three times, three times, and you can shoot the movie. I mean, that is, that was the, that was the, 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 the deal, the devil's deal. The devil's bargain. Yeah. I was about to say compromise, but that doesn't go far Mm -hmm. enough. Um, yeah. And it's sort of a bridge to the rest of Coolidge's career where she just refused to put herself in that position again. Every movie she made, mm-hmm. even the ones that aren't necessarily successful, are movies that have clear rules. Um, mm-hmm. We we screened Real Genius at the Lightbox last year as part of our oh, series on, on 80s movies that used- Love um, that movie. Isn't it? It's so good. Um, so good. Um, <laughs> it prefigures the, I mean, honestly, a lot of it, because it was the 80s, a lot of it is about Reagan's deregulation of everything, but, but Real uh-huh. Genius is about, the overreach of the U.S. military and creating clandestine oh, yeah. assassination programs, and also that's right, yeah, and and looping that's... in student labor in a way that's truly horrible ethically, but justifying it with money and and you know anti-communist propaganda. But but what we found in Real Genius was also this really progressive um, reversal. Like Coolidge had made Valley Girl, the studio wanted her to make Revenge of the Nerds, and she refused. She made like uh, their version mm-hmm. of like. The, the Columbia version of Revenge of the Nerds. And mm-hmm. she's like, no, but I'll give you this. And it has slobs versus snobs and it has jocks versus brains and it has all the other stuff, but the women are so much more, there's only two key female roles, but they are mm-hmm. so much more um, intelligent and and capable, respectable. respectable, but they'll also, Deborah Foreman comes back as mm-hmm. William Atherton's daughter, whose only purpose in the film is to sexually harass um, Val Kilmer. And it's really funny because she just, the film makes it safe. That makes it okay for them to have these bizarre conversations where she's the aggressor. And then the other one is right. Michelle Mayrink, who's in Valley Girl. Mm-hmm. She plays, um, I want to make sure this is right, Susie. Uh, mm-hmm. But she also turned up in Revenge of the Nerds and was just, crassly sexualized in a way that Martha Coolidge would never have treated her. And so Coolidge mm-hmm. gave her the role of Jordan, who is the hyperactive smart one, and let her mm-hmm. be a proper nerd, like, quote unquote, normal nerd and the hero of the movie in some ways. It's just amazing. I mean, first of all, Real Genius is definitely worth a revisit. I got to go back and watch that. But also just, I, there's such a difference. You know, I, I was really honed in uh, working with um female directors, especially indie female directors. I had a series called Casual and we it was like 70% of it was independent female director, directors, thanks to our female producer, which is why 
representation matters. Um, but it's it's um, it was just such a difference, you know, because that was a highly sexualized show in the sense that it's a woman, you know, who's sort of finding herself sexually, and mm -hmm. so there was a lot of scenes and the the stark difference of working with women on those kinds of things where the sex scenes were so unarbitrary. It was like if there was a scene, it was you know I remember Lynn Shelton said like, "How do you want to shoot this so that so that." what are we trying to say with this scene? You know, what do we, what do we want to do? Are you on top? Are you, you know, whatever it is, it's like we had to really think beyond, you know, what was going to look great or how we were going to use the the space, but just like, what are we trying to actually say? Which is something that no, you know, she called me at home, you know, a week before we even got into it. And it's just, it was like, Oh, well, this, is a huge difference and it made the scene really hot quite honestly like i would be normally be so you know sweaty betty over it but i was just like this is this is cool like with this actually this is you know like everything else we do on screen where there's a reason and a choice and an objective like this also is that and it tells part of the story that makes it very exciting like that this character is going through something so exciting and you know, I think, I think it's the same thing with, she understood how to utilize, Martha understood how to utilize women probably after that, where she, like I said, we made the, she made the devil's bargain to get that film under her belt. Then it was a success and she got to do her own thing. But I hate that we had to, you know, that women had to do that. And, um, but she knew how to utilize Nicolas Cage so that he wasn't just um, like in any way predatory. You know, she knew how to, she understood what, what tension, you know, what women were into and like what tension looked like and his, his earnestness in it. And yeah. And you yeah. could tell he just liked her. He just liked her a lot. <laughs> Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. Last week, I wrote about Sony's new Columbia Classics 4K Megaset, it's the fourth volume, and new releases of Darkman, Footloose, Tenacious D and the Pick of Destiny, and the Gate movies. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find the link in the Simcast Blue Sky account. You like reading about movies? I like writing about them. Come check it out. The thing that I found really fascinating um, is not only do they not have sex, and she comments, mm -hmm. and like, uh, Julie actually says that late in the film, mm -hmm. oh, we haven't gotten there yet, but she doesn't say it with embarrassment, or she doesn't say it like she's being mm -hmm. pressured, but but that <laughs> compared to the spectacularly non-sexy nude scenes, or the non-sexy mm -hmm. sex scenes involving nudity, where mm -hmm. men are pressuring women or peeping on them or, or leering mm -hmm. on them, mm -hmm when randy and julie are kissing like they're full-on necking in a really clearly happy you know like mm -hmm. empowering satisfying i don't know what the term what the appropriate term is but we're watching a healthy relationship even though the movie's really sketchy on what it is that randy wants beyond to kiss julie sometimes that's mm -hmm. kind of enough when you're a teenager i feel like he's about to say i don't want to sell anything that's not going to be produced or right? bought i want to buy anything so i can be sold like you said 
falls into the into the that um Roy Dobler thing. But yeah. I I I feel like just what you were saying that I think it what it sort of get you know relit up in me that I just found myself smiling and beaming at their scenes together because it took me back to that very sort of innocent time where just making out in a car, you know, with this guy that it, that was it. You know, you didn't need any food. You didn't need sustenance. You didn't need a house or a job. You didn't need anything. You just needed, that was it. That was, that was, that was the brethren. Yeah. And, and to be a teenager and see that at a time when, well, I mean, even in that movie, when otherwise everybody's being pressured to just hook up and be done with it. Right? Mm-hmm. And there's, there are movies about that right now where people are just deciding they, they want to, give into pressure just to get it over with. That's not what this is. Like this is this is something else, which I find really fascinating in the the early 80s teen comedies. Like they're sort of codifying while you're watching them. Cause on one side mm-hmm. we've got like, I don't know, Fast Times at Ridgemont High the year before, which is actually the first time that Cage had a real proper role. It was a supporting role. I think he oh, plays a fry right. cook. But this was his first yeah. lead. And then oh my the, God, of course. Right. Because yes. he's so memorable. Right. And, and just even the first time, yeah, as you said, the first time he shows up in the, on screen, it's just like, oh, this guy's a movie star. He's like, yeah. he's got something. I mean, it, yes, he's shirtless on a, on a beach, being awesome. Yeah, um, but they make fun of him being yeah. shirtless. They say, look at that guy. He's got so much hair. <laughs> yeah. And they, he lets you, he lets you laugh with him in a way mm-hmm. that maybe another actor wouldn't in that role. Mm-hmm. Um, like even I don't think yeah Lloyd Dobler is self-aware but I don't think he invites the level of engagement from the audience like Lloyd mm-hmm. Dobler is an impossibly nice person Randy mm-hmm. has a temper he's he wants to be a punk he's not very good at it um, mm-hmm. but there's somebody in there who's trying to figure out who he is and what I get from the movie is that when he's with Julie he can be that person and that person's kind mm-hmm. of sweet and nice and he's he reverts right like any any great romantic movie will have that third act challenge where the two misunderstand each other. And in this one, Julie gets scared, makes a bad choice, mm-hmm. tries to dump him. He won't accept it. Mm-hmm. And he goes off, but not in a, like, I think that's when you sort of see the actor Nicolas Cage that we recognize come out, the guy who goes big. But the minute Randy pulls it back in, it's so clear that the character is choosing to do that. It's not the actor. Mm-hmm. And that's... Like that's why he's worthy of her ultimately because he'll accept the rejection, even if it harms him. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a great point with that. Absolutely, and I think that you know about him being himself with her. I think that's really true. And what's sort of sad about this movie is the is the uh, kind of the uh, what it says about teenagers and the truthfulness around. Um, wanting to fit in so badly yeah. that Julie dumps him because her friends, it, it's not inconvenient with her friends. You know, she's, she realizes there's no future in them because she can't have the, her friends are not going to continue to stay friends with her. if She dates a loser and she prioritizes them. I mean, she even asks them like, can you please? And then, and they're just, they're more, they're more uh, beholden to the popular kind of date rapey guy than they are to this sort of um, poor guy from the other side of the hill. You know. Yeah. So it's it. 
I think that's that was like the vibes too in the eighties. I think it was, you know, I think that there was so much peer pressure to date the right person in high school because it was really going to make your life, it's the difference between your life being easy or difficult. Yeah. Well, and of and course he's the... People what? were snobs. It was the 80s. It was like materialism. It was gross. Yeah. Like everybody looks honest, like a... Like you said. Yeah. Everybody looks yeah. like a Brad Easton Ellis <laughs> character and it's yeah. dressing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I admire the the stabs at diversity, there are a couple of characters of color, although they don't really have that much to do. And I think the one with the most lines is, unfortunately, the guy in the car who gets out and does the full on uh, Mm -hmm. Latino gangbanger thing. Um, Mm -hmm. But although it's interesting, because what I liked was there were there was, there was not a lot of uh, diversity at all, except in the party scene, mm-hmm. there was all the high school kids. There was a lot of um, black high school kids, and it was never pointed out. It was never like uh, it was never noted. You know, it's just they everybody was sort of mixing and together. And I, I, I can imagine that she. I'm guessing Martha was probably like, "No, we want to, let's make it look realistic." Because I can't imagine the studio was was um, necessarily prioritizing that. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And she does it but in it uh, so Real weird. Genius, too, in a couple of key scenes. Yeah. Every time I go back, though, and look at any of these movies, I the lack of diversity is so is also so immediately jarring. And you just can't believe that that was ever just normal, just a normal thing, just something we all just accepted as normal. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, the, the defense at the time was it's who shows up for the audition. It was like, that's not really true, it's is not it? true, because I'm... You know, I I was considered exotic back then. I was, you know, I didn't get cast in things because I was, quote unquote, they wanted someone pure as the driven snow. Like, <laughs> I was not white enough, you know, and, uh, and I, anybody who uh, had, who was not the, like, pretty lead, you know, that, that's like, or anybody who had, their idea of diversity was with someone like me. And I've. I don't know that I, I don't think I fit that description. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, not in my ethnicity, probably. Yeah, but would you want to? Did I want to play the leads? Absolutely. Would would they would anybody have let me? No. You know, would I have to have looked different, acted different, sounded different to do it? Absolutely. But you know, would I have minded if if someone gave me a shot? Absolutely not. I would have loved it. But uh, but you know, I fell into character actress and character actress and ethnic ethnic actors were the same category. That's my point. Right. Is that is that you know. And now we understand that's total bullshit. But but at the time, you know, when I was coming up, that I would be called in and it would be me and, you know, like a very diverse room. But I thought, oh, this is this is my category, I guess, you know. So uh, it was very strange, like like you would have, you know, you would have either white comedians or non-white people. And that was one lump of category. It's pretty pathetic. Right. The funny friend. Yeah. Yeah. And no matter if you could be the most beautiful, beautiful Korean actress ever, who's not funny, and you would still be in the exact same category, as you know. So. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's one of those things that we're running in every retrospective has these they're not pitfalls because they should be pointed out and observed because that's the only way you learn. Mm -hmm. But, but it is kind of striking to go back and see, Oh yeah, this is, 
there's this huge blind spot that this movie has, or that there's this truly offensive thing hiding in the middle of it that oh, no yeah. one's talking about. Right. And Valley Girl, I mean, it's uncomfortable, but I think it's uncomfortable in ways that are intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, and I the, do think it holds up. I do. Actually. Yeah. And it's, again, it's the power. It's the, it's the direction mostly, but it's also Foreman and Cage. Like they're so good together. And Deborah Foreman, who mm-hmm. is like this, um, you know, uh, stereotypical Barbie, basically. Like you, you get mm-hmm. this corn-fed, um, blonde, great teeth, big smile. Like there's, there's mm-hmm. everything about her is uh, designed to look like a Southern California Valley girl from 1983. Um, she mm-hmm. fit it perfectly, but she also has this shyness or this this sly intelligence, some remove. There are times when, because the dialogue, the other thing I, remember, I wanted to ask you about is like the, the the use of slang, which isn't exactly right. Like it's it doesn't sound right now. It probably is more authentic to the way people were talking than the Zappa song, which is how we all remember it. Because mm-hmm. um, they just sort of fold it in here and there for sure. And, you know, like mm-hmm. I wouldn't ever and things like that. But she manages to give it a humanity that mm-hmm. would otherwise not be there. Like a... a, mm-hmm. a she thinks before she speaks sometimes and she knows she's making mistakes as she makes them like the whole scene with the diner scene where she just sort of casually agrees to dump Brandy and get back together with, with the most boring man in the world, mm-hmm. uh, boy, the most boring boy in the world. She plays it with real regret. And like, you can see the scales turning on your head as she's making this decision. Like she's evaluating her decision. She realizes it's the wrong one, but she makes it anyway. And I think that's, that's all Foreman and, and Coolidge for letting us see it in her. But it's such mm-hmm. a great moment that totally passed me by the first time I mm-hmm. saw the film. Yeah. And even in the friend group, there's a really nice, you know, archetype for each friend. You mm-hmm. know, the one who's um, just the really insecure one, the, the the prudy one, the, you know, the one who's like, we can't do this. We can't be seen doing this. We can't, you know, the up, that uptight kind of thing. And yeah. then uh, the one who's just desperate to hook up and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and have the boy like her and, you know, oh my God. What about like, what about serving sushi at that party? <laughs> They're like butter. eating uni. They're like that eating is, uni, oh like it's God. normal. It's, it is horrible. <laughs> but the parents are so well-meaning. And yeah, as you said, they're just kids themselves. They have no idea what they're mm. doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's so wild. Yeah. 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 Um, and, but it was, it was a cool trip. It was just weird. I just, while I was watching it, I was like, oh, oh yeah. This is why we're so screwed up. Because this was like, this is what we we're being served up is guys were just allowed to be lascivious, gross, and, you know, courses. And we had a, you know, like we just had to fight them off. I I did this um, tour, a comedy tour in Iraq during the, during the war uh, in 2009. And uh, I, I remember I was staying, we were at the base in Baghdad and, uh, I woke up there and I, they had this like closed caption TV on the base that, that anybody could watch. And in between at the, they would had the, um, uh, what was that? Cameron Diaz, Las Vegas movie. Oh, uh, what happens with, in Vegas? The one with, what happens uh, in Vegas was Kuchar. just playing on a, yeah, was just playing on a loop over and over and over. And in between it were these little public service announcements and they were all, 
you know, women, you know, to talking to their female service members saying, if you are out with a man, remember, like, here's ways to not get raped is basically what the, what the PSAs were. Um, And I was like, where are the PSAs for don't rape? Like, where are those? Where, Where is that? It's just all these are PSAs for how not to, you know, get caught in a compromised situation. What? Yeah. (laughs) like just what it was 2009 still you know and that was the mentality oh yeah i mean kirby dick made a whole movie about it uh a couple of years later i think the invisible war and Mm -hmm. um yeah just mentioned in passing that yeah that's the culture like they're everybody over and Mm -hmm. over saying that's just how it is it doesn't have to be and the way yeah the way you start is with the counter psas but but you also you use every tool you have to teach, to change course, to to redirect. But, but just like the, that, the culture was like, hey, like it was sort of this acceptance, like, hey, gals, this is probably going to happen to you. So here's yeah. how to stop it. Instead of, hey, guys, do not ever even think about doing this, you scumbags. You know? <laughs> and I think it's interesting because Martha Coolidge did, she was date raped when she was 16 and she made a movie about it. And I think it just got re-released recently and I'm dying to see it. Like I, I'm just so curious. I think she made it so long ago. might've been like while she was still a student or something. Oh, that was not a pretty picture, right? Yes. Yeah. I really want to see that. I'm just so curious what she would have made then, you know, about that. Like when the conversation wasn't being had in that way. Yeah. I remember I heard about it a number of times way, way back when. I'm not sure how or why. I've never seen it. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, the restoration premiered. I'm just reading the wiki page, of course. Um, <laughs> restoration premiered in December 22 at the Academy Museum in Hollywood. I wonder if Criterion's going to do something with it or at least put it on the channel. That seems like the, a logical thing. Um, wow. Yeah. I work for a Cinematheque. Maybe we can do something with that. We, we tried... <laughs> Thank you for bringing this you to should. my attention. Yeah, we, we tried sure. to get her in for uh, Real Genius, but we couldn't work it out. Mm-hmm. But this might be a better hook even. Wow. Mm. That would be amazing. Yeah. Okay. Amazing, yeah. Um, wow. Sorry, now I'm being distracted by reading the Wikipedia page. <laughs> I, no, I had no idea. I mean, I, I knew, I just didn't connect the two. I, I knew it existed, but I didn't know it was a personal project. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, but that does explain a great deal about everything else she's made and she's of course uh-huh. she's more intelligent and sympathetic and uh tuned into the concept of consent and, and agency yeah if she's yeah. had to tell that story herself already once mm-hmm. and um and let's let's say one more thing about this film which is the song um there's a song called johnny are you a queer boy yeah and i was trying is- to figure out how we get to that I know it is the catchiest song. And now you're just a little like you break out into a hot sweat because it's probably just really, but it's just yes and no. I mean, it was also, that was a great, I mean, new wave was all about embracing, you know, queerness too. And just, you know, that's all of a sudden there's this wave of, of people, you know, sort of non-binary looks and, mm-hmm. you know, the arrhythmics and men in, in um, eyeliner and using more hairspray and mousse than uh, ever before. And I think it's, I don't know. I just think it's, I don't personally, I'm, I'm, I, I guess it, I, I was sort of laughing at how 
I did not get the feeling that the singer who wrote it is uh, is homophobic, but no, it no. did it did remind me of the incredible level of homophobia that was so rampant. You know, yeah, very Obviously much so. the time the time of AIDS, and you know, it was teachers were getting fired for being gay and things like that. It's just not even that long ago. That's what's so wild, and it, and it's mind boggling that it ever was even allowed to be, but yeah, at no, least, they, you know, it shows us that people can change societies can change. And yeah, you know, there's some people who don't change and won't change, but for the most part, I think the appetite for um, diversity for inclusion, is just completely shifted and in it's been cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is, you're watching a, a an incredibly insulated, art form open up, right? The American mm -hmm. romantic comedy bit by bit. Mm -hmm. And what's possible now is absolutely so much more interesting just on a base mm -hmm. level, because we're seeing experiences that we've never seen before. We're seeing people tell stories who haven't been allowed to tell those stories. And as a result, they've been working on them their entire lives and sharpening them mm -hmm. and making them more powerful, more universal or funnier, depending on, on what they want to do, right? You just, you were seeing mm -hmm. the advantage of opening up the, the playing field. And yeah, Johnny, are you queer? Just, I, I read the lyrics. I had to go back and look them up, but yeah, oh, the jokes on the jokes on the singer, right? Like it's just yeah. she's writing somebody off because he doesn't like her, and she's right. homophobic. But the song's not. No, the song is so pop and catchy. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was apparently it was written for the Go Go's, but they didn't perform it initially. So Josie Cotton Josie. went off and did it mm -hmm. um, right. and recorded it. But there is a live version of it on a Go Go's B sides album, and it's mm -hmm. it's really just. It's a banger. It's a great song. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's a great song. I think it can be uh, reclaimed for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know how we make this work. Usually there's a transitional uh, point in the podcast where I ask, I wrap up by asking the guest if there's something of the film they chose that they've referenced, incorporated, homaged in their own work. I've been trying for hours to figure out if you've ever done an, a for sure in any of your roles and maybe, you know, maybe in a sketch or something, but I, is there something that I missed? I haven't been a Valley girl, but I would say that seeing this movie at a formative age was one, I think it, I mean, it's got a very indie feel, indie feeling of indie vibe. Mm -hmm. And I um, was when I started to get really into indie film in the nineties, when I would just take myself alone to the movie theater, you know, to the Angelica and wherever else I was living, I moved to Portland and I would just go see films all the time. It would definitely hit a, it hit a happy place for me. And I, I would sort of trace something like that back to a movie like this. Uh, I would also say that I am, I was a huge romantic and I was a huge, I was very interested in uh, romantic comedies specifically. And I, um, they were, it, the, the way that when chemistry works, it just so works and how uh, there was this like sort of romantic comedy boom in the, you know, early aughts. Mm -hmm. where every time I got on an airplane, there was like a different one, you know, two billion dresses and this person's exes and that, kind, you know, and it's right. just, there wasn't always the chemistry, you know, it wasn't always, it just, some of it felt really forced and really weird. There's something about this film 
there's an authenticity to uh to, to the crush to the to, to falling in love to to whatever that was that I try to bring to you know everything I do like I really 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 need that authenticity or it just feels so dumb to me um and let's see is there anything else you know I <laughs> um I don't know. I think it's just, it's just one of those films that, that goes to show like everything I do, like budget isn't, isn't gonna, isn't the definition of a good film. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's like, yeah, go, go find out who's making it. And uh, even if it's a first time director, if you think they understand themselves enough, then it'll probably be an interesting movie. My thanks to Michaela Watkins, whose new film, Suze, is now playing in theaters across Canada and hopefully coming soon to the U.S. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. You can find Michaela on Instagram at Michaela Watt, all one word, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-A-W-A-T. And you can find Valley Girl on Blu-ray in a really great special edition from Shout Studios. It's also streaming on Hoopla and Tubi in the U.S. and Canada and available to rent and buy on various VOD services across North America. You can find me on Blue Sky at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash Semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get the new booster when you can. I'll see you next week.